Today's episode is brought to you by Megan Fernandez's Good Boys. In this collection, Fernandez offers a complex portrait of messy feminist rage, negotiations with race and travel, and existential dread in the Anthropocene. Kava Akbar calls it a staggering text, ferocious, vulnerable, funny, ambitious, and deeply rigorous. Akbar continues, What can a poet do for people, for a planet, literally dying of human greed? Fernandez answers, I map the storms of the whole world. Brenda Shaughnessy adds, Fernandez's limitless imagination and beautiful, lyrical, powerful lines are worth fighting for. Everyone should give this book to someone they love, and everyone should love someone enough to give them this book. Good Boys is available now from Tin House Books. Coming up next is my conversation with Lance Olson. You'll notice at one point in our conversation that he describes his latest book, My Red Heaven, as a love letter to modernism. For the bonus audio archive, Lance reads examples from modernist works that he's particularly taken by, excerpts from Joyce, Faulkner, and Wolfe, and also from Carol Maso as a contemporary example of a work, like Lance's work, that's written under the influence of the innovations that occurred under modernism. Access to the bonus audio is only one potential perk of becoming a supporter of Between the Covers. One can find out how to subscribe to the bonus archive and look through the various gifts available if you find that the value of listening to these conversations prompts you to want to support the show into the future. These include the seasonal Tin House featured new release, which right now is E.J. Coe's Magical Language of Others, the perennial favorite Ursula K. Le Guin Conversations on Writing, signed by me, as well as the Tin House Early Reader subscription, where you receive 12 Tin House books over the course of a year, months before they are available to the general public. This last option is worth monitoring as any open spots get filled quickly which is why we've created some new options of support as well, new tiers of support, new things that you could receive if you become a supporter of the show. You can check out all of this at patreon.com slash between the covers, or if you want to support the show without the swag, you can simply go to tinhouse.com slash support. Now for my conversation with Lance Olson. Enjoy today's program. stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in 
is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the writer Lance Olson. Olson is the author or co-author of 15 novels, four short story collections, and seven works of nonfiction. His short stories, essays, and reviews have appeared in hundreds of journals and anthologies, including Conjunctions, McSweeney's, Bomb, Best American Non-Required Reading, and Black Warrior Review. Olson's accolades include a Guggenheim, the Berlin Prize, a Pushcart Prize, and an NEA Fellowship. He teaches experimental narrative theory and practice at the University of Utah, where he directs the creative writing program, and he's the author of the anti-textbook, Architectures of Possibility After Innovative Writing, in collaboration with Trevor Dodge, a graduate of the Iowa Writing Center. From 2002 to 2018, Olson was the chair of the board of directors at Fiction Collective 2, a publishing house for artistically adventurous, non-traditional fiction that has published past Between the Covers guests, Brian Evanson, Lucy Corin, Lydia Yuknovich, and Amelia Gray, as well as Samuel Delaney, Noy Holland, and many others. Lance Olson is here today to talk about his latest novel, Out from Dzank Books, entitled My Red Heaven. Carol Meso says of My Red Heaven, Lance Olson locates his porous, alluring, heartbreaking, and haunted narrative in Berlin on a day in 1927. Poised at a moment of such hope and doom, it is a ravishing meditation on history, on time, on what it is to be alive. Diego Baez at Booklist says, Olson employs a full suite of experimental techniques to tell the story, including newsreel headlines, screenplay excerpts, poetic verses, and ekphrastic reflections on unsettling scenes of bombed-out and abandoned buildings. But the real draw is Olson's supple, exacting prose, which captures the energy of cutting-edge art movements amid impending political uncertainty. There's an eerie familiarity to the air of technological and social breakthroughs with fallout or resolution just around the corner. Olson manages the best of both worlds, a historical novel remarkable for its verisimilitude and a work of innovative fiction that never employs invention for its own sake. Finally, Melanie Ray Tone says, The moment in which you awaken is on fire. You are alive or the other thing, falling to scorched earth or ascending to the rooftops of Berlin, a radiantly red heaven. You feel yourself besieged, swirling inside one startling sensibility and then another, deliriums of joy pierced by devastations of loss and sorrow. Sparked by the exuberant energy of his own multivalent perception, ignited by the brilliance of his wildly playful imagination and unfathomably expansive compassion, Lance Olson has translated My Red Heaven, Otto Freundlich, abstract cubist painting, into a novel full of dissonant shocks and thrilling confusions, a library of loss revealing the perilous ecstasies of life in Berlin between the wars. Layer by layer, he unpeels a palimpsest of paint, turning his fiercely attentive, unbounded love to every being in every moment, exposing infinite unknown dimensions, delivering us to exhilaration and terror as we watch the future and the past, 
irradiate our present moment. Welcome to Between the Covers, Lance Olson. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. So My Red Heaven takes place on a single day in 1927 in Berlin. And given that it's this specific time and this specific place that serve as sort of the foundational connective tissue for the book, rather than a specific character or a specific mm-hmm. consciousness, talk to us about why you set us between the wars in Europe and also why we are in Berlin. What, what compels you about mm-hmm. both this time and this place? To begin to answer the, the first part, I guess, is... Um, so I, I have a relationship with Berlin that's very, very close. I was over there for uh, one year on something called the DAAD Fellowship, uh, another half year on uh, at the American Academy in Berlin, and also travel over there now at least once a year for, for four or five weeks. And I grew really close to the history of Berlin, to the energy of Berlin. It's this incredible sort of artistic mecca, um, but also began to read about the history and uh, what was going on between the war years. And what was haunting to me as we approached 2016 uh, were the parallels, the rise of populism, the slow erosion of democracy, the the upending of how a government works. And so I became increasingly uh, interested in, in that part of, of Berlin. Um, and also, I think Berlin itself became a kind... Well, you know, I, I think of Berlin as the protagonist uh, of the novel, really, and, and all the people are, are sort of... Uh, uh, part of that that larger canvas of Berlin that was filled in, in between the wars with this cultural exuberance. Um, so all of, all of those and more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if we think of um, in both the 1920s Berlin and say the the 2020s America, mm-hmm. this sense that the norms have been cast aside, anything is possible to the extreme on either end of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, how does the rise of that happening now, how is that informing you when you're approaching the Berlin of then? Not too long ago, actually, came across an article in the Wall Street Journal that was published in 1933, just after Hitler had become chancellor. And it talked about how calmly Berlin, the, the German capital, responded to this because they felt that though Hitler was out of control, he would be surrounded by those who would keep the lid on. And in certain ways, it was a good thing that he had been elected so that he could enter into sort of the institutional uh, tamping down, you know, uh, uh, impulses of of the culture. Um, And then that didn't work. And again, I'm intrigued by the the same sorts of uh, impulses going on now, where we have, uh, you know, a president who is out of control in so many ways. Forty two percent of the population seems to embrace that because I, I think, in in really deep ways, um, certain parts of every culture want to really. Uh, strong daddy figure uh, who gets things done and, and is in control. So I started seeing all these sorts of um, parallels and wanted to explore those in, in more depth. And what was amazing about Berlin in uh, you know, June 10th, 1927, this day that I focus on, 
so many people that we think of as essential to the idea of modernism and intellectual and aesthetic freedom were either moving through Berlin, people like Heisenberg, um, or uh, settled in Berlin, people like Vladimir Nabokov, um, enjoying this incredibly rich uh, cultural environment where everything really was possible, right? All the fences really were down. Uh, And at the very same moment, this authoritarian um, regime was uh, increasingly coming to power and would ultimately undo all of that. And so, you know, over those 1920s, there's this incredible sense of irony uh, floating, this grim sort of understanding in retrospect of what was going to happen and and everybody being utterly oblivious to that. And if we stay on Berlin as protagonist, much like Berlin in America, Berlin then in America of today seem porous to each other in this project. It, you've talked about how Berlin is is sort of open and porous to its own past, to its own history, the Berlin of today. Mm-hmm. So if the could you talk to us about what you find unique about the Berlin of today in relationship to the Berlin that of its past? One of the things I have come to really admire about German culture, and if we put it next to American culture, it really comes out. German culture after the war made a project of asking how one comes to terms with one's past, right? And particularly the atrocities of, of one's past. How does one deal with that as a culture? And what Germany decided to do was to seriously never forget, but always remind us. So there's something called tripping stones that that one runs across in Berlin all the time. They're little uh, brass plaques that are set into the sidewalk uh, in front of buildings. And so you'll just be walking down the street and you'll see this in in a doorway. And each of these uh, lists the family members that were taken out of the building, where they were shipped, and how they were murdered uh, during the war. So it's that that idea that the past is incredibly present, but also always being um, intensely and dynamically remembered. And then you think of of the U.S. and you think of race relations, or you know you you think of the Native American population and the atrocities that have been committed, the genocide that's been committed, and America just has this crazy sense of leaving, not even leaving it behind, but absolutely negating that it ever happened. Uh, and so one of the things I wanted to do in in terms of the novel was to really meditate on how uh, the past ghosts us all uh, continuously and and what would it look like to begin to create a project to remember that that sense of atrocity uh, in a culture. Even that small gesture of the tripping or the stumbling stone, yeah. if you could imagine that in the United States, like instead of Confederate statues, we had a, a tripping stone in front of a house where a Japanese family used to live before they were taken away to internment. Or maybe we had another tripping or stumbling stone in front of a, a black-owned business that was firebombed or in, in a place... Uh, uh, of particular importance to a, a native nation, and 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 everywhere we walked, we would stumble 
and remember our, our country's complicity in something, I wonder what that would do. Right. And, and just the way you're saying that, like imagine what the present would look like if it were infused with the atrocities that went on, you know, if not on every corner, uh, nearly on every block in, in some way, shape, or form, right? Yeah. And I, I admire so much that, that German impulse to, you know, it, it's, so one of the things that I'm really interested in at the, the largest level is how we, any culture, deals with its sense of history and how the past itself is a kind of problem because who's telling the past, how one tells the past, from what you know, point of view the past is told changes the very nature of that past, right? And um, there's a, a, a theorist who's named Linda Hutchin who has this idea of historiographic metafiction. And what she does is to go in and look at texts that understand that idea of the very act of trying to tell the past is a problem, right? And so part of what I was involved with uh, uh, when I was working on My Red Heaven was exactly that, to like, to what extent do you need to be absolutely accurate in one's manifestation of the past? Can one be accurate? What does that even mean when one retells, right? Um, And that got me thinking about this whole larger question of how cultures tell and retell the past uh, and how we can disrupt those retellings, um, make ourselves uh, conscious of the very act of telling as a kind of engagement with power dynamics of, of history. Yeah. Well, before we leave Berlin as topic, or at least leave it briefly, there's this great line in, in My Red Heaven, if Berlin were a part of speech, it would be a transitive verb. And I just wanted to hear your, your thoughts on that line a little bit. It is great. I first went to Berlin about, I think, four years after the wall came down. And it was uh, really pretty grim in, in the east. There was still a lot of pollution and, and everything felt very gray and, and sort of uh, misty. However, what happened was, and this is, this is indicative of Berlin, it's still one of the cheapest cities in, in Europe to live in. You know, it's so much less expensive to live in, say, than London or, or Paris. The result was that there was this flood of artists into the area and and indeed, even when the wall was up, there was this whole thing, people like David Bowie, for instance, going over uh, Iggy Pop and so on, that they, they understood when they went into to the west of Berlin that sort of the world could end any minute and there was this tremendous sense of freeing up. So there is the, the result of that is that there's still this kind of artistic center there. Um, that is is extraordinary for its vitality. Um, artists, yeah, as opposed to say Manhattan, where you can't like live there anymore. Uh, as an artist, here you can live, you can flourish, but also you can do just these crazy ass projects, um, and there will be a built in audience that will love that and come to that and and enjoy that. That's very much what was going on in the 1920s. Um, you know, people were always like, "Well, you know, you're." You're really pretty crazy, so you should go to Berlin. Don't go to Paris. Don't go to London. Go to Berlin. That's where everything can happen. Um, and there's there's a kind of beautiful um, – I, I think of fiction as a possibility space, right, where everything can and should be tried. And Berlin is a possibility space where everything is continuously being tried. And that's that's beautiful. 
In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to the writer Lance Olson about his latest book, My Red Heaven, from Dezank Books. So considering Berlin as physical space and how that physical space is in relationship to time is one entryway into My Red Heaven. But I think the most obvious and immediate way the book assumes a certain architecture is in relationship to the abstract Cubist painting of the same name, um, the German-Jewish painter Otto Freundlich. But you, your books both share the same name, or your paint, his, <laughs> his painting and his painting and your book both share the same name. But the sections of the book are also named after aspects of the painting and the painting process. So we start with underpainting, much as a painter would begin with the paint that would eventually get painted over. Um, and so we are not only moving through Berlin on a given day, but we're moving across a canvas and through the process of the painting coming into being. So talk to us about Otto's painting, also who he was, and why this specific figure and this specific painter engaged you enough to organize a project around him in specific. Otto Freundlich uh, is not a well-known painter. Um, he was an abstract Cubist painter. And his one claim to fame in retrospect is that one of his pieces appeared on the cover of the Nazi uh, Entartete Kunst, the degenerate um, uh, art exhibition in Munich. And uh, that's mostly how we remember him. He was also a utopian artist whose grand uh, idea, though it never came to fruition, was to build a road that linked Berlin to Moscow and to line this road with sculptures. It was this beautiful project that was going to be his life work, and it was going to show how art could bring together such diverse cultures and, and uh, such diverse visions. Um, alas, what actually happened was that he had moved to France, to, to Paris, to get away from the Nazis. And when the Nazis came into Paris, they rounded him up. They took him to a concentration camp, and he was murdered the, the day he arrived. I happened to just be passing through um, Paris, at, at the Pompidou, rounded a corner and saw his painting, uh, My Red Heaven, Mein Roter Himmel. And what was beautiful about it, the painting itself is interesting. It's, it's a lovely painting to look at, but what's very cool about it is that it's made – so let me describe it. If you move from the top down, there are these sort of blocks of different shades of red at the top. In the middle, there are these blocks of different shades of green and blue. And then at the bottom, there are these blocks of different shades, different qualities of black and gray. Okay, So, so – Otto's eye moved from the bottom of the painting up from from this hellish sort of black up to this this sort of utopian sort of sort of red and what I saw in that painting was a kind of embodiment the the painting came out uh, or was finished in nineteen thirty three uh, was the embodiment of everything that was going on in in Berlin uh, the 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 energy the vibrancy but also this this idea of incommensurate uh, 
positions with respect to uh, reality, each of which was both tenable and completely arbitrary in each of those squares or, or shapes that were different sizes and so on. And I thought to myself, and this is how I, I often come to a novel, um, is what would happen if that were translated onto the page? Like what would that look like? So novels often come to me in a shape um, with some kind of general idea and then and then I think how does that work in a, in a narrative um, what will that do to a narrative? And so if you translate Otto Freundlich's painting on to the page, you get this inc- uh, incredible canvas of different voices speaking. Um, and that's what I wanted to explore. And, I, and in part, I think I wanted My Red Heaven to be a kind of uh, song, uh, love song to modernism. And um, so that, that's, that's really where the, the novel came from, was, was his painting. And then, if you think about it, uh, my um, book actually reads the painting backwards. So it starts from this very energetic, um, very uh, uh, lively sort of vision of the reds and moves down toward, toward the blacks because, in fact, in retrospect, we saw that in 1933 everything, everything changed um, in, in Berlin. Yeah. You've said the painting, My Red Heaven, gestures toward a collage aesthetic. And your book, My Red Heaven, and much of your work does that as well. So much so that there's a, a chapter dedicated to you in the book, Collage in 21st Century Literature in English, Art and Crisis. And I was reading about collage in that book. It was interesting to, to discover that while collage is widely regarded to be an invention of uh, the painters Pablo Picasso and George Brock, it was the Berlin Dadaists who were the first to subject collage to a political end. And it feels yeah. like you're employing the collage aesthetic to a political end here as well, like the Berlin Dadaists. So I was hoping we could talk not about the politics of the story of My Red Heaven, but the politics of of collage, or what are its philosophic and aesthetic underpinnings for you that you would choose it as the way to tell the story that you're telling in The Interwar Years in Berlin? It's a great question. So for me... How to say this? So when we usually read a novel, when we read, say, a psychological realist novel, we fall through the language into the world of the novel, and we inhabit that world, and, we, and, and you know, the cliche is we lose ourselves in that world. But what a collage does is something else. What a collage does is to create various voices, none of which is privileged over any other voice. And in that space, we're continuously reminded that we're living in an aesthetic form, uh, that we're reading a novel that's part of an aesthetic form, even as we're falling into this voice or this voice or this voice. So for me, um, uh, form always suggests philosophy, right? And so the question to ask ourselves is what... what philosophy does a given form suggest? And what's so miraculous about the collage form, the thing that I'm always drawn to in the collage, is that it's a polyphonic form that refuses um, to, how to say this, um, um, neutralize uh, diverse 
uh, voices. Uh, and from, from an aesthetic, uh, but also from a very human sort of perspective, I love that idea of exploring a consciousness that's absolutely incommensurate with another consciousness, a voice that's absolutely incommensurate, and just letting them sort of bump against each other, sometimes pay no attention to each other, sometimes conflict with each other, sometimes harmonize with each other, uh, just like a city. So collage is a beautiful form also to engage with cities because cities are by nature collage. Cities are by nature polyphonic and and conflicted. Uh, so, so that's what kind of drew me into to notions of collage, I think, in general in my work. And then, of course, in, in My Red Heaven, each of these little consciousnesses that are moving through Berlin on a particular day are part of this, this larger canvas, right, uh, this larger collage canvas. Well, let's hear a little bit from, from the opening chapter. So every evening, the dead gather on rooftops across the city, bodies Sexes, injuries, illnesses shed. They become aware over and over again that their lives are going on somewhere else without them. Maybe they imagine others taking up where they left off, Anita Berber thinks, heroin heat seeping up her arm. She sprawls across Otto Deeks's bed. Vinegar fills her mouth. Love happens. She extracts the syringe, and the thought lands within her that everything wasn't all right, and now everything is, because her bobbed hair is red tonight, her thin, heart-shaped lips. Next year, Anita will collapse on a stage in Damascus during her cabaret tour of the Middle East. Four months later, she will succumb to consumption in a Kreuzberg hospital. On a November afternoon feathering with snow, she will be lowered into a pauper's grave in Neukölln. The only people present will be two cross-dressers, three ex-husbands, her lesbian lover Susie, a hooker named Hilda, and Otto Deeks himself. But all Anita knows at present is it is sometime past midnight. It is June 10th, 1927. It is her 28th birthday, and earlier this evening, a skinny, mean cop mistook her in her tuxedo and bow tie for a man. Her slackening awareness attempts performing an idea. Maybe that's what they do, the gathering dead, standing on those rooftops, faces raised to the flaming ocean of desire above, watch their lives going on without them. A stubby woman surprised last summer by influenza hears her silver brush. She can smell the horsehair bristles after a lavender bath, huff through a stranger's hair. A gaunt widow, whose hope gave out last month barging up the third flight of stairs to her fourth-floor flat, pictures her husband encountering the shock of a young woman's jasmine and lily perfume at the nape of her neck. Everything wasn't all right, and now everything is. Anita is sure everything will succeed. She can feel it in her... 
Anita got so high last night, she turned up half an hour late to her own dance number at the White Mouse. In the middle of her solo, she tripped over herself. Several assholes started laughing. She took a swig from the brandy bottle on the table up front and spat it over them, smug fuckers. Only that isn't now. Now is simply this soft heat breathing through her. Now is this overwhelming love. Anita loves that love, how she can sense every dayness leaving her, watch herself drifting into her special silver light. She sees the world as if it is not within her, but beside her, below her, not within her, but across the room. Her body sheds away from her, like the bodies of the dead. She lingers above her, not her, in Otto's cluttered studio. Linseed oil, mildew, late spring leafiness. She studies how the skin people call Anita Berber allows the skin people call Otto Deeks to position her limbs whichever way she wants across his narrow, disarranged bed because because he has paid her to become his little marionette, because, just a minute, just a minute, because Anita adores cocaine, because after the second line she always knows she will live forever. Her favorite drugs are chloroform and ether stirred in a porcelain bowl, whisked with a white rose, the petals of which she nibbles at elegantly like lotus flowers. The twilight sleep she drowns in is a miracle, followed by another miracle, followed by another. Except Otto couldn't score any today. Heroin is fine. Heroin will have to do. And so the skin people call Anita Berber allows the skin called Otto Deeks to position her limbs whichever way he wants because his strong face, his slicked-back blonde hair, because he earned the Iron Cross on the Western Front, was wounded in the neck and almost bled out. Otto says he can't remember hearing the grenade explode. He was squatting in a trench in a fog at dawn and then waking up in a hospital tent, his panicked swallowing and incongruity. Sometimes, Otto tells Anita, the dream that won't leave him alone. He is crawling through narrow passage after narrow passage in a bombed-out house that has proliferated to become the universe. An incinerated corpse with shattered jaw attempts whispering something in his ear as he drags himself over it. In place of words, a handful of thin, gold necklaces and rotten teeth pour out of its mouth. Otto painted Anita for the first time two years ago, oil and tempera on plywood, 120 centimeters by 65. He made everything in her portrait a great upsurge of red, save her charcoal eyes and penciled black brows and pale angular face and pale long-nailed hands. The canvas felt like lust and amphetamines. 
Anita couldn't stop contemplating how Otto saw her. It proved if you gave her 15 minutes, she could seduce any man or woman on the planet. Only that isn't now. Now is Otto working on another piece in his Murdered Women series. Anita can't understand why. It's not that the idea bothers her. The problem is everyone is doing Murdered Women these days. George Groats, Carl Hoffer, even more now in his movie with Max Schreck in frock coat, pointy ears, bad incisors, broody shadows. What Anita wants to know is why anyone would want to do what everyone else is doing. It takes effort to make yourself yourself. She adores Otto. Absolutely she does. But he's almost 40, for God's sake. Old men should know better. Old men should know the secret is that if you need to act in films with titles like The Skull of the Pharaoh's Daughter, you act in films with titles like the skull of the pharaoh's daughter. The secret is that if you need to dance nude at 19, show up to parties draped only in a borrowed mink with a pet monkey hanging around your neck, participate in the odd private blue movie, you reach for your zipper. You become your own little marionette while pretending to be someone else's. been listening to Lance Olson read from the opening of My Red Heaven. I, I love how the form that we've been talking about is immediately influencing the way we might read the characters, not only because the book is structured after the painting of a painter who ultimately becomes labeled as a degenerate artist, and not only because you're using a collage aesthetic that was first put to political aims because of the Berlin Dadaists, but the book itself opens with a scene of two such artists, of two such degenerate artists, essentially, or artists that would have been labeled degenerate, mm -hmm. and Otto Dieks was labeled as such. Um, but the book also begins in a section called underpainting. So we know that the paint is going to be painted over. And so it feels almost like the form is telling us something that the scene isn't telling us, that mm -hmm. these artists are the art that we're opening with are the artists that either are going to be painted over or that the Nazis would like to paint over. And I found this quote by Otto Dieks, um, the object is primary and the form is shaped by the object. But I think as you mentioned before, it seems like the op opposite is, the, is true for you, that the form is primary. And I mm -hmm. feel like the form is already strangely creating narrative for the reader that may not even be on the page except for the form. Another quality of the collage form that really interests me, and, and you can hear that in this passage, is it's all about perspective, right? It's all about the angle that you're looking at something at, which will be completely different from the angle that somebody else is looking at an object uh, from and that that shapes the quality of our perceptions, right, in a, in a really deep way. So, so on the one hand, what we're seeing is Anita Berber's perception as, as the heroine's kicking in, and she's living very much 
sort of both within herself and floating above herself. The second chapter flips point of view and you see Otto Dieks looking at Anita Berber uh, and he begins to think about his relationship to her. And then as a reader, we overpaint both of those chapters, as it were, from yet another perspective, which is the perspective of 2020, looking back and realizing what is going to happen to both of them. And Otto Deeks, oh my goodness. So one of the joys of this book, obviously, and it's, it's such a geeky thing, is I just love doing the research on all this stuff. And Otto Deeks, you know, we all think of Otto Deeks as a very special kind of uh, painter where uh, a sort of neo-objectivist, um, slightly grotesque uh, subject matter and, and so on, um, that kind of painter. But indeed, as the Nazis came to power, they didn't allow him to continue being Otto Dieks. So the latter stuff that he paints are these just incredibly trite landscapes um, that are sort of fluffy and and hazy green and all of this sort of stuff. So he had to give himself over to an aesthetic that wasn't his simply to stay alive. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of that informs our perspective on what's going on in, in the scene. And that's what I meant earlier by just this shot of irony in each of these scenes, thinking of how, how incredibly freeing these scene, scenes seem to be in one way and in another completely the opposite uh, at the same time. To go a little further with this idea of underpainting, and we know that the painter of, of My Red Heaven dies in a concentration camp, and as you say, Otto Dieks um, has to give up the power of his own painting. I mean, I was reading about his painting The Trench, which I don't yeah. think survived, but mm -hmm. he did a lot of paintings of sexualized murder and dismembered and decomposed bodies, and apparently this was such a powerful painting that uh, they had a curtain in front of it. Yes. And, and so he's he's been overpainted or he becomes underpainting by by um, having to do these these landscapes. And Anita Berber either dies of tuberculosis or a morphine overdose. And all of these characters that we've mentioned are are real historical figures. And some of them are more lost to history. I'm assuming a lot of people probably don't know who Anita Berber is anymore. Mm -hmm. But some of them in, in the book, quite a few are, are really well-known people like Hannah Arendt and Martin Heidegger. And this isn't unique to this book for you, your interest in historical characters. You have books that center on the life of Nietzsche, on Kafka, on Vincent van Gogh. So talk to us about writing fiction using real people as your characters, what it gives you and how it either constrains you productively or liberates you in some fashion? Oh, man. So this takes us back to that conversation about historiographic metafiction. So uh, all sorts of things come to mind about this. I, I am attracted to people who consciousnesses uh, who, that are out of step with their time in some way, shape, or form. So uh, Nietzsche, whose imagination revolutionized the way we think, like Derrida couldn't have happened without Nietzsche, Heidegger couldn't have happened without Nietzsche, and yet Nietzsche himself was this isolated figure uh, who had to give up his teaching job and and uh, um, 
to attain his Nietzscheanness, uh, had to completely separate himself from society and so on. That just fascinates me. I just that's that's amazing, and um, I think of of fiction as as empathy technology uh, in a lot of ways. The ability that fiction has to go into minds that that aren't our own so that we can better understand and feel those minds. And so I I think of these historical personages um, that fascinate me, and I start reading everything I can about them, and I sort of try to fall into their consciousnesses. At the very same time, I'm very aware that one can't fall into their consciousnesses, um, that trying to write history, trying to write another imagination in, in certain ways is impossible, even as that's all we try to do. Or certainly that's all I try to do. It's such a, a generative space for me to find these people who have also really touched me in, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I wouldn't have become a writer had I not fallen into Kafka when I was 13 or 14. And so part of what's going on here is to thank these people. Part of what's going on here is to try to understand another imagination. And part of what's going on here is my understanding that that understanding is impossible uh, at, some, at some level. Um, as I go into into this period, in, into the interwar years, um, I was stunned at how many people who we now think of as as just essential to to the modernist spirit were moving through Berlin, right, uh, at, at this time. And they were all like my heroes. It's, I like, it was just like extraordinary. Um, Schoenberg is, is there. Einstein is there. Um, uh, so it just it, it sort of blew my mind at that, at that level too about who was actually popular. And that like, like Heisenberg would probably be walking down the street one day and like walk by, you know, Robert Musel walking the other direction. That just – that was crazy to me. <laughs> it is amazing. Yeah. Well, I wanted to sort of stay in this space, this impossible to answer space around um, the accuracy of retellings, whether accuracy should even be the question, yeah. and uh, how to find a retelling that feels in in some way honest to yourself around the retelling. Because one of the joys of reading the book is being reminded of characters from history that I either remembered or half remembered. Like I, mm -hmm. at once, at one point I knew about Mo Berg, the Jewish American baseball player who later became a spy in Europe who both tried to get German physicists to defect, but was also supposed to determine if they were close to the bomb. And you touch on something that I had forgotten that, I, that I then half remembered, which I didn't, then needed to go look up to make sure it was real that he was supposed to, he had an assignment to go attend a lecture by Heisenberg. And if it seemed like in the lecture that, that they were close to the bomb, he was supposed to kill Heisenberg. Uh, but another joy of the book is reading things that one doesn't know about at all that maybe are invented only to discover with a little bit of research that they're true. So for instance, for me, that Nabokov was a tennis instructor to make ends meet or that Rilke wrote letters where he both praised Mussolini's speeches and characterized fascism as, quote-unquote, a healing agent. But as a writer reading this, I was curious about what level of granularity there was in relationship to established truth. For instance, in the section about the romantic relationship between Hannah Arendt and Martin Heidegger, I suspect 
she really did meet him for the first time in a class on Plato. But I wonder, did she really compare him to Rain? Because Rain was something that seemed unavoidable. Um, is that did you go into her? Did you go to the level of looking at their letters, um, or is that a, is that then a moment of of Lance Olson's imagination? So I guess I wanted to hear a little bit more about the imagined and the real, and yeah. where how far you felt you needed to go mm-hmm. um, in in that granularity before we you fully depart into the imagined. It's such a complicated question. So so the short answer is. Yes, I did read the letters, and yes, um, she did compare him to Rain. But but here's the problem. Um, so you start doing this, and you think, okay, if I have enough facts, I can begin to put a character together. And then you realize there just there really aren't that many facts associated with any any person that allows you full access to a consciousness. So so I'll leave this book for a second and just talk about Nietzsche because I'm. Uh, about to do a, a, a talk on Nietzsche um, at Georgia College, and it's with this Nietzsche specialist. And I was looking over Nietzsche's stuff again. I did this novel called Nietzsche's Kisses, right? And as I went into the novel, I originally told myself I would say nothing that wasn't based in fact. And then I got to Nietzsche eating his first meal in my novel, and I was like, crap, I don't even know how people ate in the 19th century. Like, I don't know what utensils they used. I wouldn't know what a normal dinner would be. Then I wouldn't know what a normal dinner for Nietzsche would be. Then I started trying to research, so what utensils did you use in the 19th century for dinner, and what would Nietzsche have eaten at this stage in his life? And you could get certain things, like Nietzsche was a big meat eater at one point, and he thought that was really good for you. Then he became a vegetarian, and he thought that. But in any case, so, so the point was, even when you just try to get the, like, the most obvious facts, you can feel Nietzsche falling between your fingers, and, and, and you're not getting to, to who Nietzsche was. So anyway, so, so I was, I was talk, uh, getting ready to talk to this guy about Nietzsche, and I just realized... Everybody who reads I, – I, when I was doing the Nietzsche book, read a lot of biographies of Nietzsche to try to pin him down. Every biography was a different Nietzsche. Every intellectual study created a different Nietzsche. And I realize it's impossible to get back because it goes back to perspective. It depends what you're emphasizing, what you're not emphasizing, how you connect the dots, um, and what, what sort of your heart – connection is with these people too, which is a whole different set of things, right? The Nietzsche that I read or misread is going to be very different than anybody else's. So so you're dealing with Mercury the whole time with all of these people where you're realizing how much you don't know at the same time you're realizing how much you do. What's interesting to me about that is it's just like real life. It's just like trying to understand another human being. Um, Bakhtin has this really interesting idea that most people don't associate with Bakhtin. They always talk about the dialogic and stuff with Bakhtin. Bakhtin has this little paragraph in, in his work on the dialogic where he talks about unfinalizability. And he says that when we meet another person, what we try to do immediately, it's, it's just sort of the way we're wired, is to categorize the person so that we can dismiss the person. And that really people are unfinalizable. The only time they become finalizable is on their deathbeds. 
Um, so it is with characters in fiction. So it is the way we read novels. We try to move into novels. We try to move into characters in novels and categorize them and make them finalizable. But they're always these sort of slippery entities depending on where we focus in the novel, what we, what we think about, um, what little corner we see and so on. And that each time we go back over and reread a novel, the novel becomes less finalizable, not more finalizable for us. So it is when you're writing a novel. Um, it, it's, it's just been fascinating for me. I'm, I'm, I know that most of my facts, most of the facts you can check in the novel, especially the weird ones, are all totally there um, and based. But then there's all this space in between that you have to fill out. Uh, and that's that's the joy, right? That's what novels can do that other forms can't. Uh, you know, the novel can do deep consciousness in a way that no other art form can. You live in somebody else's imagination for, you know, a week, two weeks. Um, and the other thing it can do is is language for extended period. You know, three hundred pages, four hundred pages, living in this this incredibly textured language. And and then in addition to that, it can do the complications of a psychology um, for extended periods of time, that struggle between trying to understand a psychology and not understanding a psychology, which, which just delights me. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Lance Olson about his latest book, My Red Heaven. I wanted to stay on this question of character and characterization. Yeah with regards to this book and your work as a whole. Because in tandem with reading My Red Heaven, I also read your writing textbook or anti-textbook, Architectures of Possibility. And my favorite chapter is the one on character called The Metaphysics of the Pronominal Hoax. <laughs> and so I wanted to read a couple things from the opening chapter that you just read to us of My Red Heaven and then read some things from the textbook and then just see if that sparks any thinking or thoughts from you. So here are some lines from the opening chapter. She studies how the skin people call Anita Berber allows the skin people call Otto Deeks to position her limbs whichever way he wants across his narrow, disarranged bed. And then later, when she's critical of how all the painters are painting murdered women, she says the real goal is to, quote, become your own little marionette while pretending to be someone else's. So in your textbook, you quote Alain Robrier, who said, the novel of characters belongs entirely to the past. It describes a period, that which marked the apogee of the individual. And perhaps in a similar spirit, when you're discussing Samuel Beckett's Unnameable, you say, it serves as a penetrating reminder that the pronoun, the heart of the heart of character, is, at the end of the day, a sort of hoax, foisted upon us by the culture's language. That character, self, and identity are quantum fields rather than Newtonian nuggets. So I was hoping maybe you could talk more about character, what you're advancing or what you're troubling or pushing back against around the notion of character, and what you're doing with the skin people call Anita Berber or the skin people call Thomas Mann or the skin people call Hitler mm -hmm. in the book. Wow. Okay, yeah. So, so this is... One of the the quandary behind all my quandaries is what we mean when we talk about an eye. So Wittgenstein has an observation, and the observation is that a lot of 
philosophical issues boil down to issues with language and the misuse of language. One of the things that he points out is that one of the greatest misuses of language is the first-person pronoun, that because our language has created a first-person pronoun, we believe there's a continuity to the thing associated with the first-person pronoun. But we all know deep, deep inside us that that isn't the case. We know that we aren't the same person we were 10 years ago and that we're not going to be the same person in 10 more years that we are. That's a real problem. It's like, what does that mean to the contemporary writer? And and one of the things I'm really interested in my work, though, with all our talk about history, it would seem it would be the opposite, is how we write the contemporary without either abandoning the past or perpetuating the past, right? So one of the things I'm super interested in is what even constitutes identity and how that might manifest in a novel, right? So with Dream Lives of Debris, the novel I wrote before this, it's a retelling of the Minotaur story. And I tried to create a diffuse and ever-changing, a kind of Heraclitian sense of what a character even was, switching pronouns and switching um, uh, voices and so on. Um, the Minotaur calls herself, it's a, it's a she in Dream Lies of Debris, uh, Debris. Um, so here, when and, and in all of my writing, I'm always troubled by the language our culture has given us to talk about selfhood and and how I can trouble that or or diffuse that in such a way that we begin to think about that. So the skin called, uh, that people call Otto Deeks and the skin people call Anita Berber is, are, are just little cues of that problem and how it exists at a sentence level both for all writers and for for people in, in the more uh, uh, general non-writing world. Even over the course of the novel, even over just these few pages, Anita Berber floats in and out of various Anita Berbers, right? There's, there's the high Anita Berber, there's the uh, memory Anita Berber, there's the engagement with Otto Deeks Anita Berber, and they're not, they're not all synchronous. Uh, and that, that fascinates me. And there's even the, the two ways she views being a marionette. She's being a marionette, she's being objectified mm-hmm. um, by Otto Deeks and others, and yet she's claiming at the end of that passage you read, um, being a marionette for her own purposes. But it also reminds us as the reader that you are the puppeteer mm-hmm. as the writer. Since we have you creating the skin, that's this person, and you yeah. creating the skin, that's that person. Also, you know, we're all marionettes to, to history, right? Um, so I'm, I'm working all of these characters, but the historical facts are working me uh, as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and another layer to this as well that I'm really interested in, especially in, in My Red Heaven, is temporal changes to subjectivity. And so while a lot of My Red Heaven is written in, in a present tense, which is a kind of glassy, um, energetic tense, I also work a lot in the future tense uh, so that 
you're both seeing well and and it was in the passage that I, I just read too, right? You're both seeing Anita Berber here uh, on her birthday, and you're seeing her death. Uh, and so that notion of finalizability, unfinalizability is this uh, sort of fraught, immediate space that most of us don't think of when we meet a, somebody in the street. But the person you just met in the street is going to have a future we can't imagine and will eventually die, right? All, all endings are happy until they're not. And, um, and that's another way of bringing up in, into question this idea of uh, what we would call stable identity. So you said earlier that this book is also a love letter to modernism. And I do think you signal by having a book set in one day, uh, it, it immediately makes me feel like it could be in conversation with Joyce and Ulysses and with Mrs. Dalloway and Virginia Woolf. But talk to us about what you mean by modernism, um, what modernist aesthetics for you are being employed or you're doing an homage to in, in this book. So uh, tell us a little bit more about why you said it in one day, perhaps in relationship to others. But I would say not even perhaps because those books both take place in June, <laughs> which I doubt is a coincidence. And they were both, as your book takes place in June, and they were both written within five years before the setting of, of uh, My Red Heaven also. I really cut my teeth on the on the modernists. So let me sort of digress into a little story and then cut back um, to what uh, you had just asked. But I was a terrible student in high school. Uh, I w had about a D minus average going into eleventh grade, and then I had a teacher, one of those magic teachers, uh, whose name was Joyce Garvin. Uh, who did uh, the English class, and I was the kid who sat in the back of the room by the window and sort of stared out most of the time. I have no idea what incredible mind and sensitivity she had, but she called me up after class one day, and she said, clearly you're not interested in anything we're doing in class. And I said, clearly not. And she said, let me just give you this book read it, we'll get together out of class and we'll talk about it. And she handed me Kafka's Metamorphosis. Like, what was that about, right? I'm, I'm like this kid in, in what, you know, 15 or something like that. I open it up and, you know, the, the first line, Gregor Samsa woke from uneasy dreams one morning to find he'd been uh, transformed into a gigantic vermin cockroach, however you want to translate those terms. I immediately fell in love with German and I immediately fell in love with Kafka and Little did I know I immediately fell in love with modernism. And um, and uh, when I went to college, I continuously gravitated. I started majoring in journalism, and that didn't go well. And so I began to, to gravitate toward um, the modernists. And uh, there was something about meeting these texts, and I think we all go through this at some way, shape, or form, where you get to a text that is really difficult, like like Joyce's Ulysses or or, or Faulkner's As They Lay Dying. Um, and some of us get turned off by that. Like we are invited into this field of play and you either say, I'm going to leave the field of play because I don't understand the rules, or you go, like, 
I like how does this work, right? And I was always the how does this like why is this happening? Like why did Faulkner get away with this? Well, Faulkner's a collage novel. Um, Joyce's Ulysses is a collage novel. Um, Mrs. Dalloway is a more complicated narrative form, and I, I don't think you can talk about it in any way as a collage in that way. It works in a, in a different set of principles. But in each of those cases, I just felt like I was in the the sort of zone of of a kindred spirit and I want to, but the one that was so much smarter than I was and so I wanted to understand how it all worked and again I always go to forms so these forms were incredibly fascinating their sense of voice and voices right Stephen Dedalus's voice being so incredibly different from Molly Bloom's voice um uh, Addie Bundren's voice being so incredibly different from Vardaman's voice. That fascinated me too that a, 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 an author could encompass all of these perspectives in, in one work. So at that level, I was drawn to modernism. And then at a different level, I'm just constitutionally drawn to narratives that disrupt traditional narrative forms. And I think over the years, I've at least come up with an excuse for that, maybe even an explanation. But we're handed narrative forms down, right, um, through, through the years. And if we hear a narrative repeated, a narrative form repeated long enough, we begin to take that form as a kind of truth. And I think what I'm interested in is trying to short-circuit those kinds of forms to both bring out their artificiality and to suggest that there are other ways of telling the world, of telling our lives, of conceiving of this textuality that we live in, this three-dimensional textuality called living uh, in ways other than we've been given. So for me, fiction is always a kind of possibility space where everything can and should be tried. Modernism is the first huge... Uh, drive in our culture that does exactly that, that turns forms on their head. Uh, and I think that's what... And not only, you know, so we're talking literary forms, but artistic forms, right? So post-impressionism or, or you know, the, the avant-garde music of, of Schoenberg or Webern or, or, or people like that um, are all taking these received narratives and exploding them to say the world doesn't feel like that to me. The world feels other than that to me. How, do, how does that work? Well, to take this idea of not receiving received forms without troubling them, that this, the goal is to take these received forms and to trouble and complicate them. And we bring this back to character. In your, in your textbook, yeah. Architectures of Possibility, you, you talk about Freud's um, perhaps stranglehold on the idea of a character. So that yeah. characters are motivated by past traumas and by unconscious desires and by certain neuroses. Um, and that a lot of what you're writing in this textbook is sort of troubling this received form of maybe quote unquote Freudian fiction mm -hmm. and creating different types of characters or opening up possibilities for other ways to render character. But I, I wanted to hear about if you had any thoughts about Freud in relationship to modernism, because it's a super complicated relationship. He, he had an influence on modernism, mm -hmm. at least early on. The, Wolf and Joyce were very aware of him. Um, she corresponded with him. Um, it was a fraught relationship, I think, but yeah. it wasn't entirely in opposition. It was somewhat in opposition, but mm -hmm. also like stream of consciousness writing. Some of the opposition was even like in response to Freud. So in a way, he's like playing this yeah. productive role 
both in a positive and a negative sense. But I, I, I think you probably know more about it than I do. Well, I, I think you said it really, really well. Um, modernism couldn't have happened without Freud. So, you know, the, the sort of uh, thumbnail sketch that I, I draw for my students about the difference between, say, mid-19th century fiction and early 20th century fiction um, is the difference between a photograph and an X-ray, Right. And and so 19th century fiction, think of a Dickens novel, um, how he got everything right about how uh, essentially the industrial urban world worked, the, the smells, the looks, all of that sort of stuff. As you get to Joyce, as you get to Wolf, as you get to Faulkner, that becomes so much less important and what becomes important is the interior consciousness, right, of everybody. That hinge is Freud. That hinge is somebody who said what's important is our internal conflicts, our our past traumas, our um, incredibly rich and sort of dark uh, desires that drive us uh, and, and so on. So, so modernism happens in many ways because of, of Freud. At the very same time, there's a struggle because Freud was such a categorical determinist um, and people like Joyce, people like Wolf did not see it in, in those terms, right, Faulkner. Um, and so, yeah, modernism could be seen as a kind of, you know, in terms of consciousness, this continuous struggle but, uh, with, with Freud. But what happened in modernism were, were these new ways of telling consciousness, right? So Molly's section in, in Ulysses and this development of stream of consciousness um, comes as much from Freud as also from William James, Henry James's brother, who coined the term stream of consciousness and uh, that consciousness doesn't move in this logical, you know, think of Dickensian or think of Flaubertian sort of moves, but rather in this associative uh, uh, mode. And one of the things, again, in My Red Heaven I try to do is to tell consciousness in different ways. So we heard in the Anita Berber uh, section a more realist telling of consciousness, even though it was troubled in the ways we talked about. But there are parts of it that are uh, more stream of consciousness, uh, like when when Einstein thinks and and uh, that sort of s- sort of textual thing. You also asked about some of the forms um, that happen in in My Red Heaven, and what I tried to do was to mimic, um, essentially, to pay homage. Right? I mean, a, a lot of times when I write a book, it's to say thank you to other books for existing in the world, um, and uh, and what I tried to do was to tell each chapter in a form that was both compatible with the consciousness that was uh, the center of the chapter while at the same time trying to connect with some essential modernist form. So we talked about the larger level of collage, but at smaller levels in the in, in My Red Heaven, I look to filmic forms uh, for modernism. I look at... Um, you know, as I say, the stream of consciousness for modernism, but also this whole idea of the materiality of the page, which becomes increasingly important in the modernist undertaking, that the page itself becomes a space of performance, not only what's in the page, but how the page acts. And that goes to who you were alluding to earlier, Hannah Huch, who's uh, a Dadaist, modernist uh, collage artist, who is shot through with a, a political 
a sort of gendered political um, disruptive consciousness uh, who did these magnificent, surreal, sort of proto-Monty Python-esque um, collages uh, that, that just captivated me. So, so, so form again. Keep, we keep coming back to form and we keep coming back to undoing um, narrative forms. And modernism is the thing that gets us to move that way in the 20th century. Well, if we were to think about William James' version of stream of consciousness versus Freud's and look more to association, I did want to talk about the way you you make transitions from chapter to chapter. Yeah. Because unlike Ulysses, there's no Leopold Bloom. Mm-hmm. We leave the skin of one person and enter the skin of another, and we don't return to the person we've left, except possibly as as a character seen by the new protagonist. Mm-hmm. So there is this sense of connection between everybody within a chapter. I'm just going to read a, a little excerpt from Sam Sachs in the Wall Street Journal that I think captures the way you create connections between people in a chapter. But then afterwards, I was hoping maybe we could talk about the transitions and and your thoughts about transitions and how to carry the reader along when you've so evocatively have created the world of Anita Berber and then we end up in another consciousness in the next chapter. So this is what uh, Sam Sachs said about My Red Heaven in the Wall Street Journal. Mr. Olson strings together the artists and revolutionaries who lived in the city into an intricate skein of happenstance. Figures as disparate as Werner Heisenberg and a young Vladimir Nabokov are momentarily entangled. In one scene, Hannah Arendt and Martin Heidegger on a lover's tryst witness a deadly traffic accident. Walter Benjamin is disturbed by the commotion from a nearby cafe, while Greta Garbo views the ruckus indifferently through her hotel window. Elsewhere in the city, the soon-to-be anti-Nazi martyrs Otto and Elise Hampel walk their dog past the apartment of Franz Kafka's lover, Dora Diamant, just as overhead an airplane carries Goebbels and Hitler away from a successful rally. So that feels like both a weird form of historical collage that shows how retrospectively possibly random things seem to have some sort of coherence or, or meaning in the cultural moment. But how do you carry us when you've, you've brought us into or given us the illusion of being in the consciousness of, of a specific person? Obviously with Anita Berber, we get that transition to Otto Deeks in the next chapter. So we're, we're, there's that, maybe stronger ligature from chapter mm-hmm. to chapter. But tell us about some of the other ways you move. Yeah. So, okay. So first of all, I should back up just a little bit and say this is a kind of hat tip at one level to Virginia Woolf um, and Mrs. Dalloway. So there's this moment in Mrs. Dalloway where different people in London are seeing this plane flying over. And it's that plane becomes – and it's sky writing. And people can't figure out what it is writing in the sky. And that becomes a kind of – uh, plot triangulation. So it goes, you know, consciousness sees plane, we see plane, then we drop into a different consciousness seeing plane. What 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 in, drew me into that moment in Mrs. Dalloway is this beautiful sense of perspectival change again, um, that a different consciousness engaging with the same object sees that object in a completely different way and reveals itself. So one of the structuring principles in My Red Heaven is a chapter will end with character X and then there'll be a pivot and in the next chapter, 
character Y may see the same thing, may see the uh, character X before it, but in some way sort of negotiate. So you'd mentioned Nabokov and uh, Heisenberg. So Heisenberg's going up into a train station. Somebody picks his pocket and he's left in this little chapter sort of patting himself down, realizing that his wallet's gone. And then the next chapter pivots in from Nabokov, who's sitting in a train, pulling out of the station, doesn't know it's Heisenberg, but sees some guy in a shabby jacket patting himself down as the train moves away. And there's something for me so poignant about how important we each feel we are, right? Um, David Foster Wallace has a lovely line somewhere about how if we just take a moment to think how few people in the world are thinking about us in any given moment, we we would sort of become a little bit more humble. And I, I, I love that idea of each of these people think their whole world is in this little, you know, I don't know what, just getting pickpocketed and patting yourself down, whereas... To, to everybody else in the world, you're some kind of weird guy doing a strange dance on a platform in a shabby coat. You're not Heisenberg. You're just something else. Um, so so it, it, I, I think a lot of what I was doing with the ligature was trying to tie one chapter into another by some switch in point of view that got us to understand both this huge dance that's going on called a city and also these incredibly dense little microscopic consciousnesses that are moving through that city that seem so important at the moment and then with another switch of perspective seem completely unimportant or just background noise to somebody else's life. And tell us a little bit about the butterfly. As one way, you, you more um, fancifully connect some yeah. of the chapters. Yeah, so, so Rosa Luxemburg uh, gets... Uh, in history, the real Luxembourg, uh, gets uh, killed by the Fry Corps, um, who are, are these kind of, I don't know, proto-Nazis. Um, and in the novel, um, I actually, this is a, a hat tip to a, in a very different way. I, uh, an early influence on me was Gabriel Garcia Marquez as well. Um, and I, I adored how he could do magical realism by treating you know, something like a block of ice um, at the beginning of 100 Years of Solitude as the most magical thing in the world. But then a woman's transcendence as she's hanging clothes outside, as she floats up into heaven as the most realistic thing in the world. And so I just wanted to do something along those lines. Um, And so Rosa Luxemburg, after her death, turns into a butterfly and is sort of wheeled up in the air and this gust of, of wind and blown across um, Berlin lands and is uh, instantly crushed by uh, the boot of somebody who isn't even paying attention. They're just sort of walking across a little little pasture meadow um, and happens to kill, you know, Rosa Luxemburg again. Um, and, and it, it, you know, tongue-in-cheek the whole time, but also something... Uh, that's emblematic of how the, the the whole novel works in terms of that switch of point of views. Um, so it wasn't a nod to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Oh, I wasn't even thinking about that. That's awesome. Yeah, totally right. The, the and the butterfly, the butterfly effect. Wings. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that's totally that works. <laughs> now, now I will simply echo that. you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, 
Well, also these these transitions where we're we're in a way forever leaving also makes me feel or makes me think of how many of the modernists were actually fleeing or either yeah. they're either f- refugees themselves or they're sort of fleeing or being pushed to the margins of the cultures that they remain in. I think, you know, modernism's really gotten a bad rap. I don't know how it's perceived in the the world in general. In academia, it's sort of been, you know, categorized and finalized as this elitist mode of all of these sort of old white males um, doing crazy avant-garde things that nobody can engage with. And, you know, actually, if you look at it, it's not that at all. Um, it's it's a whole bunch of people who are politically incredibly engaged with their, their daily lives. Most of them are, like you say, refugees from – certainly from their pasts, oftentimes from repressive regimes, right? Like, like uh, Nabokov, you know, who had just fled um, Russia – and uh, went to Berlin because he thought that Berlin was going to be a safe haven for intellectuals only to find out that that didn't work well um, and have to flee again first to Paris and then and then to the United States. And all of them were trying to answer this incredibly important existential question that we were talking about earlier about – so, OK, so I live in this world of extreme flux. I live in this world of extreme authoritarian – uh, repression and, and and the rise of a kind of politics that was almost unfathomable. How do I write that space? How do I come to understand my my contemporary? And then reinventing art itself in in these incredibly poignant ways. You know, you can't read Kafka's Metamorphosis or As I Lay Dying or The Sound and the Fury um, without your heart breaking a million times, you know. And and then the language, I, this is something that the modernists also taught me was just this texturing of language. So not language as, as you know, invisible glass-like thing that you just fall through, but language that continually calls attention to itself, not just to show off in some avant-garde sort of way, but to say language is the problem. Like, like you know, Derrida has this, this line that says we should all remember that language is simply not one more problem among other problems. It is the problem. Mm-hmm. How we represent is everything. Um, and what are the consequences of representing one way rather than another way, not only formally but even linguistically? And somebody like Wittgenstein, another good modernist, coming along and saying language is such a problem that we're e- even our pronouns, as we said earlier, are uh, have all these consequences to use. Yeah. Well, roughly at the center of the text, we have Walter Benjamin fleeing his flight across the continent to escape the Nazis, where he's ultimately turned back by Franco in Spain. And just as he's about to be sent back to occupied France and ultimately back to Nazi hands, he he commits suicide. And he's one of the early pioneers of bringing the collage technique into literature, as well as the fragmentary and the disjunctive in general. And you have this long section in, in My Red Heaven told in numbered fragments, At one point, you have him say, suppose you began to regard the essay you are writing not as a piece of music that must move from first note to last, but rather as a building you could approach from various sides, 
navigate along various paths, one in which perspective continually changes. This building, we might submit, would constitute a literary architectonics that pits itself against narratives seemingly inflexible arc from birth to curtains. And this quote made me wonder if Benjamin was, in particular, serving as an avatar for Lance Olson. Because elsewhere, outside of the book, you talk about an essay by Milorad Pavic, Mm -hmm. the beginning and the end of reading, the beginning and the end of the novel, which asserts that there are two kinds of art, reversible and non-reversible. Non-reversible is like a piece of music, or conventional narrative where you're supposed to experience it linearly, and reversible is more like architecture or sculpture where it can be entered at various points and wandered through without a sense of beginning, middle, or end. So are are these words in Benjamin's mouths your words? (laughs) Uh, And Are are they his words? Are they Pavich's words? Um, And then also, do you think of My Red Heaven as a reversible text in this sense? Yeah, and and the answer is yes, yes, and 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 yes. I uh, respond deeply to texts. So, okay, let, let let me back up for a second. So, a lot of people don't realize that uh, the shape back to form again of, say, realist novels, psychological realist novels, um, always move from right beginning to muddle uh, to end, and that that mimics at this super deep structure level the structure of all our lives, right? So the end of every novel is a kind of death. And it's and so at deep structure, you're being reminded that we die, we die, we die. And what I'm really uh, sort of fascinated by is Pavich's point that we could create art that sort of short circuit, uh, short circuits that movement in ways that, I don't know how you'd say it, sort of embrace a different narrative of life rather than this deep structure of movement toward toward death. And uh, Pavich himself um, in, you know, Dictionary of the Khazars and other novels tries to design novels that just refuse that movement. And I love that. You know, it's it's a lost cause from the beginning because the realist novel is right. We're, it's, we die, we die, we die. But I just love those moments of, of life. So anyway, so uh, so in My Red Heaven, because it comes in the form of a codex, that thing that's sort of, you know, bound along the spine, it's a little harder to conceive of as something that breaks a form because the codex itself follows that form. You You think you need to begin on page one and end on page 268. But it is true that there's absolutely no rhyme or reason for why one uh, section of My Red Heaven needs to be read before any other section of My Red Heaven. I think the only sort of part of it that shades everything, colors everything, is the last few pages where there's this very strong sense of of world collapse and page collapse uh, and and materiality collapse. We can talk about it if, if you want to. But but I, I so yeah. I, I really love the question to ask yourself as a writer of how can we how can we tell the world in a way that doesn't begin and come to a middle and then an end, because most of it for us is all all middle. Mm. Yeah. Well, if we if we think about this idea of. Uh, writing as architecture rather than as music or as 
uh, possibility space, as you've mentioned yeah. before. You've done a three-dimensional novel with your wife, Annie mm-hmm. Olson. Can, mm-hmm. you, can you talk about that? A, a, a novel that you can literally walk through. That's right. So, so I wrote a novel a couple, oh my goodness, I think 2014, I can't remember, um, called Theories of Forgetting. And Theories of Forgetting, in a lot of ways, captures its form uh, through Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty. Um, one of the protagonists in there is named Alana, and she's a video artist. And and there's a little uh, passage, it's almost like a footnote in that novel, uh, that's a URL. And if you type that URL in, um, you can actually go and see one of the films she created. So that, that this this was what I was thinking of originally. And Annie and I were sitting around one day talking about this very cool possibility of a novel spilling out into the world, of confusing itself with the world much more, like that that little URL that was the, the birth of it all. And it suddenly dawned on us, it was like, oh, what would happen if we staged a retrospective of Alana's work? Um, that is to say, take a character from my novel, create a retrospective by in, uh, uh, generating all the films, all the videos uh, that she produced or as many as might have survived in her life, but throwing it as a, a sort of straight-faced retrospective. So as people walk into it, you're walking into a three-dimensional novel, you're walking into a fictional space where you as reader do what you do in regular novels, which is to try to figure out who this character was, what the past was, uh, what her life felt like, and to create a kind of density to it. So we did that, and you know, ironically, what, what would be the most uh, um, comfortable and, and welcoming space to do that in except Berlin? And so we had some friends who ran a gallery there, and uh, we, we pitched this project. They were like, this sounds really great. Okay, let's do this. And it was kind of beautiful because uh, we gave no sign that this was a fictional space, except that if you read carefully enough the descriptions, there were inconsistencies among the descriptions. I wrote up a catalog for it and designed a catalog for it. And if you look closely at the catalog, the the date of the show on the catalog is always several months in the future. It's not the actual date of the, the, the time that the show is going on. And so there are all these little cues that you're moving in fiction, but you've got to pay attention. So the show is all about attention. It's all about curiosity. It's all about the things you need as you read any text. Um, but this is a three-dimensional text. And then there's something called a vernissage in, in Berlin where uh, usually the day before the show opens, uh, audience is invited in to talk with the, the artists. And uh, because Alana had passed away, I stood in and talked about her. But then in the audience, there were some plants, and the plants would raise their hands and and think back on what an amazing person Alana was and what a (laughs) complex life she had had and all of that. And so there was all this sort of cognitive dissonance floating in the room, right? It was like, I think this is real, but I'm not sure this is. And that's the space I really wanted to explore. Um, So we've done that, and we've shown it um, a number of times, both in Europe and, and in the U.S. since then, and also uh, gave talks on it where we sort of show our hand. Uh, that space uh, 
also is really interesting because it goes back to what you were saying. It's you inhabit that space in a reversible way that you tend not to inhabit most novels. That is to say when you walk into a gallery space, usually your attention is drawn out of chronology very quickly. Something catches your eye across the room or you know, some plaque says something that's really interesting and so you, you read the room differently because you see that plaque before you see that plaque, but that, that sort of thing. And so the experience of it is both like a traditional novel in the sense of, of character and so on and not like a traditional novel because it's a three-dimensional reversible space. Yeah, that sounds amazing. You <laughs> should bring that to Portland. I would love to. <laughs> There's a lot of experimentation in, in My Red Heaven. And then one of the things that that punctuates the um, the entire novel are the newsreels where we get yeah. uh, the voice of of journalism, essentially, from mm-hmm. the German state telling mm-hmm. us what's going on through their lens as the novel progresses. But after Walter Benjamin dies... Mm-hmm. Um, the experimentation feels like it increases and becomes mm-hmm. less predictable. Like there's feels like mm-hmm. there's there's some sense of we know what we're going to get in formally in terms of the formal innovation, and then things start to uh, tumble and unravel. Mm-hmm. We get new forms, new fonts, new use of white space, grayscale, photographs, sentences written on top of each other. And it feels like whatever sort of held together the first half of the book is no longer there. And mm-hmm. we're slowly seeing something come apart. I was hoping we could talk about the photographs in particular, at least to mm. begin with, because they aren't identified. Mm-hmm. We just get the photographs. We don't know exactly what we're looking at. And they have very strange, mysterious captions that don't illuminate in an informative way. Mm-hmm. They illuminate in some other um, non-logical way <laughs> what we're looking at. So we don't know exactly, maybe kind of like this exhibit, we don't know exactly what we're seeing and from when. Um, so if, I was hoping you could talk about the role of of the photographs, but also your interest in image text, because uh, you've had a long-standing collaboration with Andy Olson that has mm-hmm. been an image text collaboration over a variety of books and also your book hideous beauties which had 10 fictions each based on a photograph painting sketch collage um so this is an ongoing concern this isn't new that this appears in my red heaven but it feels like a very my red heaven specific way you've employed it in this book so definitely tell us about it in general and and specific okay so so these photographs uh most of them were taken actually by uh, a friend, an expat, who's named uh, Michael Kreutsch. Um And they're of these spaces called lost places in Berlin. Lost places in Berlin are places that were locked down or abandoned at the end of World War II, usually on the last day of the Battle of Berlin, or after the wall fell. Um, and what you get are these aba- these really haunted, abandoned spaces that often still have oh, bullet holes in the wall or parts where you know hand grenades went off, soldiers' boots, so on. Um, we also had a friend who uh, 
long story short, had access to a lot of the bunkers. So a lot of the bunkers in Berlin, when the Allies came in and tried to blow them up, were so well built that they even shooting like tank uh, uh, you know, artillery at them wouldn't get them to collapse. So the Germans just like locked them and walked away, or the Allies locked them and walked away. So what's in them stayed exactly the same as the last day of the war. So we uh, gained access to a number of the bunkers. And, oh, man, there's this one that's a medical bunker, for instance. And you go in and uh, that treated the German soldiers during the Battle of Berlin. And the stretchers are still there with the blood of the German soldiers on them. The, the doctor's uh, jackets, lab jackets, are, are still there. Um, uh, the shelves of morphine and that, that kind of stuff. Still there. So these incredibly haunted spaces, right? And what I wanted to do was to use those photographs not as the way photographs are usually used on the page – um, to illustrate. I'm just not interested in illustration because words should be able to illustrate whatever you need to do, but rather to create juxtapositions or tensions. So if you think about it, 1927, these photographs are often from uh, places that were shut down in 1945 or 1989, and yet they create these really, in my mind, haunting tensions um, between, again, this 1927 present and futures that we know but that the characters wouldn't know. And then this, these uh, little phrasings that you're talking about, these captions that you know allegedly identify them only complicate them further. And a lot of these little um, captions are taken from earlier in the novel but completely out of context. And so they, they, they should at least deep psychologically echo back and then definitely create a, a, a moment of, of uh, um, some kind of confliction or some kind of uh, static, sort of ontological static as you're looking at these things. And I use them, the photographs, to sort of punctuate the prose So the quest, uh, toward the end of the novel. So the question for me formally, again, was how do you represent a culture slowly coming apart at the seams, not only through story but through visualization? And I wanted to have just as what you're saying. You're such a great reader, David, um, to see the, the uh, culture coming apart very materially on the on the page in a way that you know didn't feel um, gimmicky but really felt essential to our understanding of the movement of the culture in the novel so that's what was going on with photographs and at the largest level I'm really interested in different kinds of syntax and grammar so um, uh, visual syntax and grammar um, linguistic syntax and grammar, and then this newsreels that you were referring to, which are so wonderful. Everything in the newsreels were actually out of German newsreels, and the the slow fall into a kind of fascistic uh, mentality. So at first, they're just talking about things that Germans have done that have been wonderful, and then you start getting references to Aryan babies, and then you start getting references to, you know, our economy is second to none and all of these sorts of things. But journalism is always sort of skirting on the surface in this very uh, – a, a grammar of transparency. And what I wanted to do as we moved into the last, say, 
last fourth of the book or so was to completely undermine that sense of transparency. Mm. And also we have invisibly in the in the background the form again that you're doing an engagement with the image of the painting but you're moving backwards towards the blackness instead of towards yeah. towards the heaven again freundlich was such a, a utopian thinker so he just thought our eyes always moved up and i guess i'm in many ways the opposite my eyes always move down yeah well i want to talk about that juxtaposition of everything being possible in in Berlin of the 20s and America today, in a sense, and how everything being possible isn't necessarily the thing it might, yeah. the best thing. Yeah. But it, it made me think of these seemingly improbable things, and some of them weren't in your book. Like one of the things I went to in my brain was that in 1936, uh, when Hitler is, is hosting the Berlin Olympics, mm-hmm. France is is electing a Jewish socialist head of state. So that seems like something out of a science fiction book, but mm-hmm. was true. And it feels like at the same time, while Weimar, the Weimar Republic um, is really huge for the emancipation of women, is uh, pushing gender norms in really interesting and innovative ways. There's breakthroughs in art. And in a way, it feels like Nazism is a response to this new sort of unbridled experimentation and freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also see that again now. Um, I mean, I don't want to suggest like Obama represents something as innovative or as experimental or as liberating, mm-hmm. but having a black president followed right by our first black president mm-hmm. followed by Trump or even like the various things that are now on the table as possibilities by candidates, which which even eight years ago, I don't think would even be being discussed as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We're having the, this intense possibility put up against this really um, profound terribleness that's happening at the same time. I don't know if I'm saying it well, but I think about Freundlich, who ends up being killed in a death camp. He said aspirationally, the object as the antithesis to the individual will disappear and with it the state of one person being an object for another. And he also sought to abolish boundaries between the world and the cosmos, between human beings, between mine and yours, between all the things that we see. So like everything was on the table, including him mm-hmm. being exterminated simply yeah. because he was a, a Jew. Um, just as you can read Red Heaven as being a cooperative utopia or a bloody, violent mm-hmm. place. So I don't know. I wanted to talk a little bit about the opposites, which seem inseparable, <laughs> because I feel like you're, particularly at the beginning with your epigraphs, you you seem to engage with this, with the sense of like inseparability of the opposites. So you have the Ellen Hinsey, which says, somewhere someone still remembers, somewhere else someone forgets. And then you have the Jenny Erpenbeck, the forest provides the wood for the axe that will chop it down. We live right now, and this is another parallel, right, with the, the 1920s in, in this space of crazy extremes, right? And, uh, and uh, you know, a little bit of careful what you wish for. If everything's possible, then everything's possible. Uh, and, and we're, we're uh, you know, in a catastrophic possibility space right now in, in so many ways. And I think... 
both with the 1920s and uh, 30s and with our own space, we didn't count, or at least a lot of us didn't count on a fundamentalist right-wing response to a kind of liberation and and progressive thought right so so uh you know you were talking about obama and you know he was he was hardly an angel and there there are lots of complications to his pre- presidency but he he was emblematic of something right he was emblematic of a kind of movement forward in consciousness that we thought would only lead to another forward movement in consciousness, but in fact led to a backlash uh, that we're seeing that is is utterly incomprehensible, I think, to a lot of us, right? And I keep thinking, so a lot of the people who I'm friends with in Germany of my age would have had parents who were Nazis. And it's been really interesting talking to them and understanding their relationship to that space, and it's still, you know, very, very close, of of people who felt that the world was out of control, the economy was incredibly unstable, the uh, work, the workers, right, the the working people were uh, being abused in all sorts of ways. The culture seemed to be coming apart at the seams in terms, you know, trains not running on time, these kinds of things. And you get this incredibly powerful father figure coming in saying, I will take control of everything. Now, you have to give me something back. You have to give me back part of your freedom. You have to give me back part of your soul. Um, But I can take control of things. And that response is overwhelming from a a large part of the population listening to the folks who who, uh, are the parents of my my friend's generation um, saying, you know, at first things got better. Um, At first we thought – um, this guy who we knew was lying a lot of the times, we knew was manipulating government a lot of the times, was uh, creating a sense of order. And then there's this moment where we realized it was too much and we couldn't go back uh, and and that he could feed on this kind of, you know, pit bullish paranoia um, and and uh, all the deep, deep fears that a culture has of invasion from the outside, right, um, of always wanting to be the last in the culture in, close the gates, keep everybody out, keep, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's it, to me, just extraordinary how many parallels there are at that level about what's happening right now. And I think, you know, and I, I, I don't mean to get up in my soapbox here, but I, but I just think a lot of Americans aren't seeing on a daily basis that things look so different than they did just like a month ago, two years ago, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I want to talk more about that and about being an artist in our time. But before we do, I want you to read a piece to set that up. Great. Okay. So this is a, a journalist. He, he's at home. It's late at night. He needs to – he's working on a deadline. He needs to write a uh, review of a Hermann, the new Hermann Hesse novel. Um, but he has a hard time uh, – doing that and he seems to be drifting. It's unclear whether he's 
mentally slipping a little bit or if actually he's sort of shimmering between worlds. So entering the newspaper office frightens him. He can see his editor's eyes altering when Kurt speaks up at meetings, or maybe he has read one too many novels. He wants to get up from his desk and go to the cafe and meet a friend, any friend, preferably a woman friend. A woman might understand better than a man what he is trying to say, to whom he can confess that he has finally read one too many novels. Not, Kurt would explain, Kurt types, because he doesn't like novels. He does, Kurt does, more than anything. But each keeps proving something Kurt always intuited. Novels make precisely nothing different forever. He doesn't want to think about it. He can't stop thinking about it. You can appreciate the radical faith each embraces, even the most faithless. Still, their rhythm, syntax, metaphorical alchemy, every sentence an act of awareness, their desperate expressions of possibility, which are always desperate expressions of light, possess the extraordinary power to change nobody. Medicine, matters of state, automobiles, what color shirt you put on this morning, these make things other than they were. But novels, imagine all the ones that have been published. Imagine all the humans who have read them, are reading them, will read them, yet stubbornly continue behaving just like humans. Imagine all the societies that ponder them, teach them, write about them, talk about them, reverently pass them down from generation to generation, pretend to care, yet stubbornly continue behaving just like societies. People carry on killing, brutalizing, bullying, cheating, swindling, stealing, lying, gambling, overeating, fretting, celebrating selfishness, messiness, laziness, neuroses, arrogance, rudeness, despotism, greed, hypocrisy, impatience, vengefulness, manipulation, disloyalty, mercilessness, pessimism, childish dependence. And their novels are Supposing they act as queries designed to bring about contemplation, commiseration, provocation, transformation, when all they accomplish is to confirm that everything is made to be broken. And so, consider the consequences of their presence in our lives. There is none. I want that cup of coffee. There is none. I want novels that know they can't do anything and yet try to do it anyway. There aren't any. I want to ask my cafe friend, is anyone still honestly interested in stories? She might respond, that's an easy one. Everyone and no one. The very idea of her reply is exhausting. Or she might ask me in return, what do you mean by stories? She might point out, we can't even talk about the question because the notebooks of Malta Lord's Briga exists, you idiot. And you've seen those excerpts from what Robert Musel is working on, those bits from Alfred Doblin's montage thing. Kurt types raising his head while typing. Kurt types raising his head while typing. 
Kurt types, raising his head while typing, to see the minutes in which he is sitting are on fire, typing to see the minutes in which he is sitting are on fire, typing to see the minutes in which he is sitting are on fire, because it is clear to him. What is clear to him? It is clear to him. Clear to Kurt Severing. And it ends there. We've been listening to Lance Olson read from My Red Heaven. So I wanted you to read this section about this anxiety about the uselessness of the novel and perhaps the uselessness of art. So uh, I know this is an impossible question, and I feel like the, the reading that you just gave also captures the impossibility of an answer to it. But I'm going to ask you a, a question <laughs> anyways, because I wanted to ask about being an artist now mm. during our cri- our societal crisis that we're in. Um, or at least the culmination of, of, I don't want to say that this came out of nowhere, that this is, at least from my vantage point, the culmination of hundreds Mm -hmm. of years of Mm -hmm. not taking care of the crisis that is the United States. But um, you yourself have said, so-called experimental fiction teaches a fundamental political lesson over and over again, as much through its structural complications as through its thematics that the text of the text, the text of our lives, and the text of the world can and should be other than they are. And to me, this, this suggests a hope at least, and perhaps it's a kindred hope to Freundlich that art can make a difference. But given that we are artists in a time when families are being put in cages, we've been at war for 20 years, where a small handful of people own more and more of the resources of the world, uh, global climate collapse seems imminent. And yet, unlike so many countries in the world right now, nobody's on the streets. We see mm-hmm. these mass mobilizations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all over the world, uh, Hong Kong, Bolivia, these, yeah. these immense protests happening Mm -hmm. for transformation and change and here there's just like tumbleweeds as we're in maybe that we're maybe not only in the in one of the most um uh, tenuous places in terms of whether of what the future of democracy here is but also have the large one of the largest effects on the world as a whole depending on which way we go and i was thinking about Otto and Elise Happel and their mm-hmm. postcard project in the book, which I didn't know was real until right. I looked it up. Yeah. And the out, at least for a while, the outsized effect it had. So maybe hoping you could talk about that, how that went, um, what it was, mm-hmm. and then talk more about like where you fall on the spectrum between severing, I would at least in this chapter, a pessimist mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Freundlich being an extreme optimist in the face of, of something terrible. So the Hopples were a couple in Germany, not very well educated, not very, you know, intellectually uh, uh, engaged. And yet what they did is the Nazis came to power was to begin to write these little postcards as acts of protest. Um, they couldn't change a lot, but what they thought they could do was through each postcard uh, placed on a park bench or or in mailboxes around their neighborhood and vetting, bring to attention the fact that we 
and they use this word, need to resist. We need to resist uh, the thing that our country has become. And the Gestapo, all the people who received the postcards, instead of resisting, turned them immediately into the Gestapo. The Gestapo thought they were dealing with this huge band of subversives and it took them something like 18 months to figure out, that, oh, no, no, it was just this couple um, who were doing all the postcards and uh, arrested the couple and ended up beheading them, which was one of the things we don't hear about a lot, but that's actually how the Gestapo uh, did a lot of the executions in, in Berlin to, to make a point. And, and it was a reverse guillotine also, right, where they're looking up at the blade as they're getting that's right. beheaded. That's right. And, and, and the reason it was very calculated, right, everything was emblematic of something. If the Gestapo wanted to give you dignity, they would put you face down in the guillotine um, so that you wouldn't see your future flying at you. But, but uh, when they didn't respect you, they put you on your back so that you were, you know, terrorized to the last second. So and, – and obviously that's, that's emblematic of, of what we all do as artists, right? We all write our little postcards and leave them around and hope somebody listens to us. Well, so I'm not only a writer. I'm also a teacher. I teach at the University of Utah. And, and these things are just incredibly intricately bound in my mind. It's like what is it that we're really doing? Why – you know, behind the things that we appear to be doing, what are we trying to do? And, you know, I think there's, there's a part of me that is so much the pessimist. I look back at history and I think, what, is, what has any of the, these artistic movements done? What has, any piece, what has any postcard ever been done except get turned into the Gestapo? But then there's this other thing, like we all know ourselves, right, these moments that we have read books and been transformed by them. And... For me, you know, it goes back to, to my high school teacher, Joyce Garvin, giving me the metamorphosis and everything changed. Like my world changed. I saw everything differently because that book existed in the world. And I think that's what I try to do as a teacher and what I try to do as a writer is to create a space of what, we, you know, Freud would call it the examined life, right? Just thinking harder about where we are, complicating the narratives we've been given, asking ourselves, can we think our way out of this? And if we can't think our way out of this, you know, can we can we just love each other a little bit harder um, as as you know the world goes on fire around us? And and I think um, you know, creating a space of contemplation, right? Um, I, I see a huge difference between entertainment and art. A lot of people blur those two things together. You know, art should uh, teach and entertain or something. But for me, entertainment is that thing that speeds up our perceptions and gets us to think as little as possible. It gives us spectacles by which we can can neutralize our daily pain. And I think art is just the opposite of that. It slows us down. It gets us to be curious. It gets us to work against um, the given and to create these little moments of change, right? And, and the other thing is, like, we may not change for our whole lives. We may change for five minutes. We may change for a week. We may change for a month. But that in itself, I think, is, is uh, a wonderful and imperative process. And over time... Perhaps, perhaps something good will, will will come of it. I said earlier, and I have a line in 
Um, here, I think it's uh, My Right Heaven that's spoken by Kafka that says all endings are happy until they're not. And that that is also true and colors everything that I, I say. You know, and you mentioned climate change and, and we keep – the narrative going that maybe we can change this, but a lot of the scientists now are saying we've already passed the point of no return. It's not about changing it. It's about adapting to how we're going to live as a species now that we've destroyed the planet. <laughs> well, this idea of slowing down perception and, and art versus entertainment, I, wanna, I want to transform that into maybe a recommendation coming from you to our listeners about other possible things to read because in your, in your anti-textbook architectures of possibility, you talk about the idea of renewing the difficult imagination of embracing and not shying away from an engagement with unconventional texts just because they require effort. And even your discussion of character talks about how having characters that resist characterization is really the way to get us to ask the important questions about who we are and why. Um, you end that textbook with a list of limit, what you call limit texts mm -hmm. that are emblematic of innovative writing. It's not supposed to be comprehensive. It's just a, yeah. a, a nice, robust uh, place to begin for people who are looking for more. But whether it's on the list or not, if people are listening to this conversation, are compelled by having mm. just read My Red Heaven and want more, um, what are some books that might pop to mind to you that you'd want to point people to that maybe aren't being um, sung enough? Yeah. So, you know, obviously I would go back to some of the modernists. You know, Joyce's Ulysses itself is a course – if you're a writer, is itself a course on how to write. Um, Faulkner's As L.A. Dying, um, Wolf's uh, Mrs. Dow. I mean, really – oh, man, there's so many good ones. But more, much more contemporary. There are a couple I would really point out if we're into this realm of the difficult imagination, into this realm of texts that challenge us and get us to think about things that are, are most deep to the way we shape our world, the language, the pronoun references, that sort of thing. Derrida always says, um, I don't listen to, to the question. I always listen to the question behind the question. And these are the texts that get us to ask the questions behind the questions. So I would say um, there's a magnificent hypermedial work. Uh, it's online. It's free. You can just go over and look it up. It's uh, by a guy, a Canadian uh, multimedia artist who's named David Clark. And it's called 88... Um, uh, constellations for Wittgenstein. Magnificent. It got me to completely rethink even what we mean by beginning, middle, and end. It creates a work that, that has none of those. Um, on the page, a transformative text for me um, in the last in a decade or so is Steve Tomasula's Vass. Um, it's the most beautiful book uh, that complete... It's what's so beautiful about Tomasula's work is he goes like, you know, some people say think outside the box, and and I sort of say what box? Um, <laughs> just a completely, a completely uh, uh, redesigned sense of what the novel is that talks. It's sort of active metaphor has to do with genetics and the history of genetics, especially eugenics. Ironically, in the United States, not in Germany, uh, and how eugenics was a, a, a very po uh, powerful moving force in the 1930s and 40s in, in the U.S. But he takes that metaphor and brings it into the novel and says that 
the the novel tries to be traditionally a, a, a sort of eugenically pure form, uh, but that actually when we study the novel, when we go back and look at the history of the novel, what we're reading are exactly those moments of aberration in the DNA chain, um, and that's that's what so that I, I would say that. Um, I love, love, love it. A whole different level. David Markson's works. Um, uh, the last novel. Speaking of postcards, it's almost like like it's written in. It's a collage novel. It's written in these very, very short anecdotal sections, and um, and it's a it's a, a magnificent way to engage with paring down condensation. How much can can be activated in in fifty word little segments? Um, I always I always give my students that. Um, you know, I, I think we have a mutual friend in Lydia Yuknovich and and Lydia's stuff. I just pick up anything by Lydia Yuknovich, and and she's so politically engaged at the same time that she's aesthetically engaged, and so uh, you know she just came out with Verge, it's, and and it's great, it's magnificent, and it, and it's just. You know, we worked on FC2 together for a number of years. She was on the board when I was the, the chair, but we also sort of came up together in this world. And, and, and it's just so wonderful because everything that she does is so – and it's something we haven't talked about as much as maybe we should have here um, – so deeply felt. And, and you know, we've been talking all sort of highfalutin theoretical stuff. But, man, you know, if, if it doesn't break your heart a thousand times a page, it, I, I don't know why we're reading it. Well, I'll just say, since we didn't talk about it enough, that we talked about all the different ways you've been experimental in this book. And I know a lot of people think that word is forbidding mm-hmm. um, or it means difficult. But, but the novel is heartbreaking. Like part of my curiosity about the transitions Mm-hmm. of how you carry us from one to another. When you do so many things that traditionally would make it hard for the reader to reconnect, yeah. you succeed. It's like oh, this, it is great. like a magic trick in the sense that there's all of this um, formal experimentation, but none of it really is at the expense of, of, of being engaged with Berlin in the moment. And I think, you know, if I've learned anything as a writer over the years, that that's what I want to have learned. And it's, it's, I mentioned this earlier about fiction being empathy technology. I mean, and it goes back to this larger question. I don't care about this stuff that's just sort of uh, spinning wheels and saying, look, you know, it's all about that in the service of trying to understand. I mean, it's the most incredible thing ever that humans do is have the capacity to try to connect with other humans and understand what that means at the deepest uh, level. And so, you know, I'm so not any of the people in my red heaven. I wanted to understand other people. For me, as a writer, it's all about trying to get out of oneself and try to connect uh, with other consciousnesses and understand them. That was that would be another answer to the question of Nietzsche or Van Gogh or, or Anita Berber is just, you know, how do other humans work and how do they feel the world? How do they... How do they experience experience? And and that's really what I go into every morning thinking about. You know, all these formal things are incredibly fascinating to me. Like I, I couldn't live without them. But they're all ways of getting into this, this deeper idea of, you know, humanity is a collage, right? Mm-hmm. Humanity is a, a, a polyphonic set of voices. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for being on the show today, Lance. It was really oh, great. Thank you, David. That it, Just a blast talking with you. We are talking today to Lance Olson about his latest book from the Zank Books, My Red Heaven. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Lance Olson's work can be found at lanceolson.com. Lance also adds the reading and discussion of excerpts of writing by Joyce, by Faulkner, by Wolf, and by Carol Maso to the bonus audio archive. This joins supplemental material by Miriam Taves, Garth Greenwell, Lele Long Soldier, Richard Powers, Christina Rivera Garza, Ted Chang, Tommy Pico, Brandon Shimoda, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, a Sapatita Me can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.